what I'm now realizing scholarship is can't be achieved through a DIY resource or a static resource. It, it can only be achieved in a community space where people are interacting with each other and co-constructing it. And all of that is a fairly recent development in the life of scholarship. Thinking about shifting your business model is one thing. Actually doing it is a whole other thing. Do you burn the old one to the ground? Do you make a gradual shift? Or do you just tack on one more service that you're offering? I'm Susan Bowles, and you're listening to Break the Ceiling, the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. And we've been talking all about risk and resilience in this series. We've explored how examining risks and uncertainty can identify the steps that your business needs to take to create strength and resiliency. We've talked about the two biggest and often most anxiety-producing risks for business owners, cash flow and taxes. And we've talked about some different ideas for building financial resilience with new and diverse sources of income, like harnessing your intellectual property or creating a community. So if you missed any of these episodes, make sure you go back and catch up on them. Today, we're shifting from talking about risk and resilience in the abstract and looking at what it looks like to actually go through this process, to examine the risks in your business, re-examine your business model, and then actually make some changes to how you do business. For my guest today, that shift was a move from one-to-one services to a membership model. Margie Thomas built Scholarship as a place for creative, visionary scholars to gather and support each other in creating story arguments, which is a framework that she developed and you'll hear more about in the episode. For Margie, creating her community and shifting the kinds of work she was doing was a natural evolution of a framework she created through her work with her clients. She looked at her business and realized that one-to-one services really weren't the best delivery option for the folks she was working with, and it wasn't really the business she actually wanted to be running. So we'll talk about what was going on in her business that drove her decision to create Scholarship and to shift her business model. We'll talk about how she actually executed that transition and what her business looks like now. Hey, Margie, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. So... Tell me a little bit about what was going on in your business before you decided to kind of make a shift from one-to-one work. Okay, so it's actually kind of hard to pinpoint when I decided to shift because I feel like in a way, the current version of scholarship that is not one-on-one was kind of present from the very beginning. Um, And it was a really natural and gradual evolution process over the course of years. Um, But the way the business first started was freelance editing. So basically, I just needed a way to bring in money quickly so I could feed my baby. And at some point, I think it was as early as the first year, I I never thought of myself as a freelancer. Um, I never thought of myself as just selling my time. I always thought of myself as an entrepreneur starting a business. Um, So I think on some level, I knew it would not always be that way. And, and I think part of that is even in the fact that I chose the name Scholarship for the business. Um, I remember consciously thinking that I wanted to choose a business name that had a sense of expansiveness to it that I could grow into. Mm. Um, but in terms of like actual dates and details, I would say um, 
It's actually funny you asked me this because I was just going through old photos of my son and I found a picture of him at two years old, which would be five years, five and a half years ago. And on the wall behind him was like a conceptual map that I had put up all over the wall with post-its of my mental model of my process with my clients. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was trying to map out the process that early on. I was kind of blown away by that. Um, when I tell the story, I tend to identify one of the major kind of evolution points as um, I would say November 2018 was when I first put stuff out there, tools out in the world for people to engage with, you know, aside from, in other words, trying to help people without selling my time, but helping people by putting out a tool they could use on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, just a couple of years ago. Um, but the, the seed of the idea was there really early on. That's so interesting. I think oftentimes when we're starting out, we don't realize that we're really setting the stage for what our business is going to be. I love the idea that you had this thing mapped out on your wall before you even realized it. Yeah. And it's funny because I was kind of squinting at the photo, like trying to read what I had even written. And it's completely different from what the conceptual model ended up being. <laughs> you know, it evolved so much over the course of those five years. Yeah. Um, such an such an evolution. That's so interesting. Yeah. So tell me how you kind of evolved into the different products, revenue streams, services, however you want to think about them. Um, how did you kind of develop those to what you what you're doing now? Well, it was a really smooth evolution because I never so developing tools or a program or a course, um, anything like that is incredibly time consuming. It's like mm -hmm. an enormous investment of time and effort and energy that you're not getting paid for. Um, and not having an income was never an option for me. So the way that it, it evolved was that um, I would just kind of, I think of it like having multiple tabs open in the computer of my brain. So, mm -hmm. you know, all those years, thousands and thousands of hours working with my clients one-on-one, -on -one, I was always thinking about what are the larger patterns I'm observing here? What is the um, underlying, like, what am I doing when I am helping my clients? And kind of, you know, I, I, I bill my one-on-one -on -one work by the hour. So, you know, just countless times, I remember like stopping my client clock so I could pull up my, you know, scholarship document and, you know, or stop and write on my post-it notes. Um, to kind of capture what I was doing with clients. So in other words, kind of the, the process of developing scholarship as it currently exists, which is this, you know, it's a community based on a conceptual framework that I synthesized called the story argument model. Um, the development of that is really inextricable from all of those thousands of hours I spent helping clients one-on-one. -on -one. Mm, I think that's a, that's, challenging for everybody is to kind of step out and identify what your process actually is. You know, everybody has a process, whether they recognize it or not. But being able to get that out of your head um, and get how your brain works out into the world, I think, is just really a challenge. I know it's something that I personally struggled with. How did you kind of approach that? How did you get the framework that you were seeing, that you were observing, uh, that you knew worked, how did you turn that into 
something that existed? Oh, that is a great question. Um, one thing was that I tried to notice what I found myself saying over and over with clients. Mm -hmm. I tried to notice what questions I found myself asking over and over. Um, I, uh, I, I read a lot. So I'm in a weird industry. My, my industry is academia. You know, I help scholars develop their scholarship. Um, and so I, I read everything on scholarly publishing, scholarly communication, you know, the books that have already been written on that and look for patterns there. And I look for what's missing there. Um, I, I listen, uh, you know, I just, it's kind of, I'm, I'm never off duty in a sense, no matter where, mm -hmm. where I am or what I'm doing, I'm taking in information from the world around me and kind of processing it and looking for kind of the underlying structures of things. Um, the story argument model itself, I mean, it, it truly, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It just evolved through iteration and conversation. I, there wasn't a moment in time when I invented the term story argument. I just found myself using that term to convey something, you know, in conversation with my clients. Like I actually, for, for a while there, you know, cause, um, so the service I was providing was the, the closest term to describe it is developmental editing, which means I, a scholar would send me a rough draft of their manuscript. I would analyze it and provide detailed feedback uh, to help them figure out how to revise it into the most compelling version of itself. So I spent a lot of time writing these really detailed revision memos. And I found myself over and over again using the phrase story or argument or story slash argument. And then eventually I just hyphenated it, your story argument. Um, so... Yeah. So it's not really an easy answer um, because there's not really a moment in time or even a specific set of steps that I followed, um, aside from just kind of living in the process and thinking about it all the time and listening, absorbing information and, and letting the key organizing concepts kind of rise to the surface. Yeah, I think that's a much more natural and maybe authentic evolution to put out a product or put out a, a framework, then sometimes I think we feel like we're forced to head in that direction. And it can be really hard when it's less of a natural, it just naturally evolves as it is, I think. Yeah. So as you were kind of developing this methodology, what actually prompted you to go from I'm, I'm doing exclusively one-on-one -on -one to I'm thinking about uh, offering this in a new kind of method, a new medium. Um, how, how did you kind of transition that? Have you finished the transition? Are you midway? What does that look like right now? Hmm, okay. So I mentioned earlier in this conversation that November 2018 was the first time I put out some sort of tool um, mm -hmm. outside of my head. And that was free. I did like a, a free 30 day sort of initiative that people could sign up for. And I put out a new writing prompt each day for 30 days. And the prompts basically captured the way that I talked with clients. So, so that people could have something of the experience of working with me one-on-one -on -one just by kind of applying these writing prompts to guide their own writing and reflection. So that was free. And then um, from, but it wasn't, those were, well, okay, I'm going to try to avoid too much detail here. Um, basically, so that I guess the next major step forward was 
summer 2019 when this is when I charged for the first time for something other than my time. Well, actually, let me back up for a second. Um, So I've been in business for, I started the business in early 2013. And there were a few times along the way over the years that I made money from things other than my time. Um, Like I've, I partnered with someone to do a webinar and I've done programs with universities and things like that. But the first time I monetized the story argument model was it was in late summer 2019 that um, through a mastermind with Tara McMullen, who's awesome, um, I was able to discern like that this was the actual moment in time when I was supposed to do my first beta program and charge for it. <laughs> mm. So in fall 2019, that was when I did the first beta of what at that point I was calling it the build your story argument program. And it was basically uh, a library of about 15 hours worth of videos of you know with PowerPoint illustrations, walking scholars all the way through the story argument model. So basically saying, first of all, what is a story argument? Why are we using this language to talk about how we craft scholarship? And then second of all, like what is the basic structure of a story argument and how does that look different across different academic genres? How does a story argument look in a book? How does it look in an article? How does it look in social sciences? How does it look in history or whatever? You know, so some of the points of variation. So it was still really kind of a DIY resource um, in the sense that I wasn't connecting the participants with each other. I, I reached out via email, you know, to hand invite people who I knew from my extended network and clients um, to to join this program to basically get uh, get my brain. I hate to put it that <laughs> way because it makes it sound like it's about me. It's not about Marie so brilliant have access to her brain. It's about here is a synthesis of thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of studying powerful scholarship and these are the patterns. this is what it looks like. So people you know paid for access to that in fall 2019. And then the next giant step in the evolution was, you know, just a couple months after that, after that first beta wrapped up and I, you know, gathered feedback from everybody, um, it became clear that it was time, like the, that first version was really kind of one dimensional, having it be this static resource. And what I realized was that all of those videos that I had made were actually meant to be like the backbone of a community or the, like the framing of a much larger dynamic conversation. Um, So I ended up uh, essentially now the, it's not the build your story argument program anymore. It's the build your story argument modules. And they are one of the many resources inside the scholarship community. So it was January, 2020 that I opened the doors to that community for the first time. And the first cohort came in Um, and started kind of engaging more dynamically with the resources and with each other. And through that, I was able to revise everything and develop a bunch of tools that layer on top of the story argument model to make it easier to implement in different situations. So at this point, it's like uh, ScholarShape feels like a whole universe. It's like a world that scholars enter into and move around within and speak in a language, you know, learn a language that, that they speak to each other in. Um, and, and it's about a lot more than just technique. This is one of my major revelations over the last year is that scholarship is not about 
getting more publications, more prestigious publications. It's not about writing more quickly. It's not about, it's not even really about writing with greater technical excellence. It's about embodying a whole new approach to scholarship that's, um, that's a lot more holistic and like soulful and um, centers intuition. And so in other words, <laughs> everything that, what I'm now realizing scholarship is can't be achieved through a DIY resource or a static resource. It, it can only be achieved in a community space where people are interacting with each other and co-constructing it. And all of that is a fairly recent development in the life of scholarship. Yeah, that's a t January of 2020 is um, an interesting time to be launching things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you kind of decided to go from this group model to a community model and shift away from one on one work, you know, why was that shift the the right choice for your business model at that point? You know, what was going on with you or with your approach to business and how you're working that drove this shift? Was it, you know, your customers were clamoring for it or you were having a choice that you wanted to move away from one on one work? What was what was kind of the what made this the right choice? I think it's really all of those things. But on a personal level, I can't keep doing something once I know how to do it. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I got to the point where I'm I'm working with the most brilliant scholars on the hardest projects for the, you know, most famous presses. And it's like, okay, I, I know what I'm doing here. Like it, it's each project is a challenge, but it, it wasn't enough of a new kind of challenge. Like once I had this whole mental model of a story argument in my head and I knew how to apply it, I just, it really sapped my energy and inspiration Like I, to mm. feel like I was doing the same thing over and over. Another big part of it was I, I just increasingly came to feel that that original business model, like I increasingly felt out of alignment with it values wise in the sense that it it's really, it's just such an elite service. Mm. Um, I mean, the people I was supporting are wonderful and they're, you know, they, I'm glad I was able to support them and their work needs to get out there and they deserve to have all of that help, et cetera. But you're leaving so many people out and um, academia is, it's a really, it's a, um, it's a really hierarchical discipline or you know industry and there's a massive massive gap between the haves and the have-nots and you know the people who have five or ten thousand dollars to pay someone to support them through the process of writing a book they're wonderful and they deserve that but i i don't think that they're more deserving than someone who doesn't have that money <laughs> there are there are a lot of projects out there that really need to be done and a lot of scholars who really deserve support um, who needed a more accessible way to access, to, to get that support. Um, so that was a huge part of it. It was just, just like desperately wanting and needing to not have to turn people away all the time. <laughs> um, and, and hating the fact that even the people who could pay me, it just felt like a, an unreasonable, like in some cases, an unreasonable kind of sacrifice. You know, people don't go into academia to get rich. No one expects to make any money off of scholarly books that they publish. Um, it's a labor of love and it's a service to society. And um, and it just, it felt like the world needed a, a new way of <laughs> approaching that entire process. 
Um, so yeah, and and I would say, um, even the people who would pay me, you know, for my time and could afford thousands and thousands of dollars, like it's more empowering of them to have, to to be able to internalize more of the kind of the the conceptual model and the the mental framework that enables them to do more of it themselves. And then whatever money they spend, you know, for my time, they can really maximize that because they've been able to access a lot of the kind of external resources that I've taken out of my head and put into a form that they can interact with themselves. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. That is a combination of, you know, you being intellectually interested in the work, which I totally understand. Uh, because for me, the interesting part is develop develop the system, figure out how it all works, figure out, you know, where the pieces move. Um, but I'm much less interested in running it once it's up and running. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's less intellectually interesting. So I can totally relate to that. Um, but I love that part of this was you bringing your values into the business in a really applicable and kind of structural way of having this value that you want access for the rest of the scholars. And I spent a huge part of my career in the uh, administrative side of academia, so I can totally mm. relate um, that the the difference, as you said, between the haves and the haves not is so incredibly stark and that there are so many, especially in the like adjuncts and the yeah. students that are doing important and good work and um, get financially compensated very little for all yeah. of that. Um, I, I love that you found a way to bring that into your business in a really structural built-in way. Yeah, I built the entire universe around the people who, or at least what I'm trying to do, like every day what drives me is this desire to build a kind of alternative scholarly world that is centered around the people who are marginalized in academia as usual. So mm -hmm. it's, I, I had been seeing it as a counterculture, really, um, over the last few months. I'm now evolving again <laughs> to see it less as a counterculture and more as a bridge because I actually like as I make connections now with the quote unquote powers that be in academia as usual they're like oh wait what you're doing is really cool we, we want to know about that and I'm like oh okay this is even better I can actually help make connections between these scholars who are marginalized and the you know people within the institution it, it, we can we can kind of um rewire and restructure academia <laughs> um, <laughs> without having to totally destroy it or build something completely separate from it. Yeah, I, I love that concept. And I think there's so much opportunity because higher ed is just in general, so slow to change for anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes. I think it's so cool. And I, I just love that you built it into your business and that you're that's something that you took into consideration because I think that's an important part of us building businesses that we enjoy being a part of. Yeah, and you know, I think it's something I, I talk with my scholars about a lot is that like this kind of work, there is no guaranteed reward 
there's no guarantee of, you know, a lot of money. Like, I don't know what else can, can propel someone through the process of developing a scholarly book other than internal motivation, just intrinsic mm -hmm. motivation, the sense of this needs to exist. This is my, you know, the universe has laid this work upon me to do. Um, and that's really how I feel about scholarship. I'm a very weird entrepreneur in the sense that I really don't care about money. <laughs> I'm not motivated by that at all. I know most people who want to scale up or increase their impact or turn their service into a program, you know, part of that is, you know, leveraging your time such that you can increase your income. And for me, when I think about more money coming in, I think, ooh, how can I reinvest this in making scholarship even better? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's almost like I use entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial methods to to create something that for me, it feels like my art or like my contribution to society. So it's very idealistic in that sense. I don't think that's weird at all. I one of my um, favorite quotes is an Andy Warhol quote that says, um, business is the best kind of art. Yes. And I, I always come back to that because I think there's this real element of being able to create something from nothing that you can have whatever impact it is that is in you to create. Um, and that businesses can really drive change. They can really impact the world. And so yeah. I'm with you on the idealism. Oh, thank you. That, um, I, I think those are the best businesses. Those are the ones that are most fun to run. And I think those are the ones, you know, that have a real impact on changing the world we live in. So yeah, it was uh, always nice to meet other people who <laughs> see it that way. <laughs> now what? That's the question I hear from a lot of service-based business owners. Maybe you've been asking yourself, now what too? You've built your business from the ground up and your business works, but maybe it's not growing. You keep bumping into a ceiling on how many clients you can take on and maybe how much money you can make. And maybe now you're even wondering if your business has staying power. You might be keenly aware of how small challenges could easily balloon into big problems as the market and the economy change. I help entrepreneurs decide how to take action so they can build more resilient business that's primed for growth. I combine strategic thinking with a background in business finance, data, and operations to see the patterns that have your business bumping against a growth ceiling. I'll show you exactly what you can do to break through and make more money, all while making sure the foundation under your business is strong. I have a few new client openings for my quarterly or monthly advisory packages. When you work with me, I'll examine your financial reports to spot opportunities. We'll talk about where you're feeling friction and discover ways you can reclaim your time and attention. We'll dig into how to scale your operations without sacrificing quality so you can increase your capacity and make more money. And each action you take will be informed by strategic financial insight and data-driven operational planning. The result? You'll feel wildly capable and in control, and you'll finally break through that ceiling. Ready to learn more about working with me as your business advisor? Go to scalespark.co slash advisor. So tell me about what kinds of changes you've seen from the business owner, kind of since launching, since shifting, how has this shift to a more community-focused 
um, community-based business model. How has that impacted your operations or you as a founder? Hmm. Um, you know what's funny? I, I remember having the vision like about a year ago, like when I was first getting really serious about, okay, I'm going to do my first beta now. I'm going to, you know, be spending less time on client work. I, I had this vision of myself being untethered from my laptop, which felt like the most liberating thing in the world because I, it's just like 12 or 14 hours a day, almost every day in front of my laptop and so much screen time. Um, so one of the things I really anticipated being wonderful and liberating about having a different business that I was running was that feeling of, um, I wanted to feel more weightless, you know, um, mm -hmm. and then I anticipated doing a lot more work through my phone as opposed to my laptop and stuff like that. Um, and that really has come to fruition. Um, I'm able to do a lot more, just day to day, I can do a lot more of my work um, because my community is built on a mighty network, which I love the platform so much. Um, so when I'm creating resources or tools or infrastructure for that, that all happens on my computer. But the day-to-day -day operations I can do through the app on my phone and I can like um, do, what is it like talk to text or, you know, where I like mm, dictate yeah. um, instead of typing everything out. And it is amazing. It is just it feels so good to be able to like something that used to take 10 hours and someone would have to pay me a thousand dollars for, they can like go through the resource I created, type their question. I can be like taking a walk or pacing around my apartment, dictate my reply in five minutes and give them the same value that used to take 10 hours. That happens almost every day and it feels incredible. <laughs> um, so I, I guess that maybe the biggest change to operations is just the feeling of um, satisfaction that all of those years creating this structure are now finally paying off in the form of being able to give more value. I, I can expend less of my life force to deliver more value to people. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Is that nuts and bolts enough? <laughs> Do you want me to talk about like actual processes or software or anything like that? Talk to me a little bit about, um, do you have a team behind the scenes? Are you creating all of this and managing it? Or do you have somebody helping you? What does your team structure look like here? Oh, and did man. that well, change at all from the, how you were structured before? It, scholarship is me. <laughs> And people can't believe this when I tell them or when I show them everything inside Scholarship. They're like, what? Like, what? You did that? How? <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> um, I've had a few times over the years when I would hire someone to do something and it just wasn't right. <laughs> and it took so much more time to redo it and then still have to pay the person. I, For whatever reason, like, I think it's amazing when people build teams. Like, to me, that is in itself, that's an art you know, defining a vision that you yourself, that you can't do with your own two hands that requires more hands and then finding the people, bringing them in and choreographing them to all work in concert to realize a vision, that is amazing to me. And I'm so in awe of it. And I think there's a version of that in Scholarship's future. But right now, I, I'm, still, I'm still so close to it. Mm -hmm. um, I still can't separate the vision from the execution, like for me, the, like, for example, I've made every single graphic <laughs> inside <laughs> scholarship. 
um, because I can't explain to someone what the graphic needs to convey. I have mm. to, I, I figure out what it needs to convey through the process of creating it. Um, and, you know, one of the core premises of scholarship is that scholarship is a form of art. So our aesthetic choices are inextricable from the meaning that we're conveying. So in order to actually embody that core value, things like fonts and like <laughs> the graphics, like all every single detail of that really matters um, in order to create the kind of universe that um, facilitates the transformation that I'm, you know, that I'm gathering scholars into. Um, so the short answer is I do everything myself and it's crazy <laughs> and I work a billion hours and I love it. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, now and then I'll do the exercise you're supposed to do where you write on post-its, all of the tasks involved in running your business to figure out what you can delegate. And every time I do that exercise, I just, I either find something I can automate or something I can cut out and not do at all. <laughs> So I still haven't gotten to that point of being able to define what I could hire someone else to do. Yeah, I mean, I have a very similar model in that ScaleSpark is just me um, intentionally because I do the same thing and I'll go through and I say, what can I automate or what can I stop doing? Yeah. Um, and that's been intentional um, for me from the beginning. And yeah, eventually it'll have to change. But um, I think that's a really lean way to go about business. And I'm always interested in the different kinds of business models and the different ways that people can execute scale um, without growing a team. Because I think there's a lot of different options in terms of the choices that you make about your business that drive whether or not you do need to have a team. And I think there's right. lots of viable ways that you can go about not having a team because to me, having a team is a choice and it's a conscious, a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes unintentionally people grow a team and then go, Oh, mm -mm. I don't wanna, now I have a team and I don't want to be what do a I do team manager. Them? Yeah. It's really fascinating. I, you know, I think, uh, for me, part of it is a lot of the things people hired team members to do are just things that I don't need. Yes. <laughs> like I don't, I don't use social media. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy it. I, it's, I mean, there, there's probably a future version of scholarship that will, but there's no point hiring someone to post on social media for me because I've built my entire marketing network around not needing it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so much can be automated and all that. Um, no, I think you're a great example of, kind of what I'm always talking about here, which is, you know, if you can eliminate the problem at the front end by either yeah. saying, I don't need this, or I don't need a person to do this, you know, you can really be very, very lean, um, very profitable, because you just don't have to do things that don't matter. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of the times it doesn't matter. Social, That's social right. media is one of those where um, I think everybody feels like we should mm -hmm. be there and that it should drive our businesses but I've talked to very few people that actually have that being the case that they are getting a lot of clients from social media or particularly in, you know, client, client based businesses. Yeah. It's um, really fascinating. And another one is like the complicated email sequences. Like I, mm -hmm. I'm not dissing them. I'm sure they're wonderful for many people, but like I barely even email my list of people. I don't even know how many people are on it. Like <laughs> I just, Yeah. It's, um, I don't know, I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's important to be 
really, really intentional about what our specific business actually needs. And you know, it's just like when you're developing a book, you know, a scholarly manuscript, you you kind of iterate toward what your central thesis is. Like, what claim am I actually trying to advance in this book? And how much can I cut out of this book mm. in order to advance that claim? Because if I include anything that's not necessary, I actually detract from my point. Oh, I love that analogy. That is a good analogy for running a business. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it's amazing. It's really the exact same process. I say this like all the time. It's one of my favorite discoveries from building a business is that they're all knowledge products. Like when you develop a scholarly book, that's a knowledge product with a thesis and you carefully include, you know, you carefully just decide what you're going to include and how to arrange it. And when you're building a business, it's a knowledge product. You've got your thesis is like your value proposition, the thing you're selling, like why someone should pay you money. And then everything you include in the business is designed and arranged to support that one central point. Mm. I think that is a perfect place to start to wrap this up on. So is there anything you think that we should talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Um, well, this has been a really wonderful, wide ranging conversation. I think, um, I think the biggest thing um, for me is just really honoring and respecting intuition and um, kind of trusting yourself and developing your capacity to trust yourself um, and like letting it be okay and actually wonderful that your business doesn't look like anyone else's. Um, for me, for me, that's, that's the joy of business. Like when it can truly be a creative act and when I can feel like my business is something only I could create or the way that I do it is, is a way that only I could do it. Perfect place to end on. So where can our listeners find you if they want to connect with you or learn more about what you do? Well, if people are curious to kind of just get a more detailed picture of what ScholarShape Shape is all about and how, like what the community offers and how I describe it, because I know it can be tricky to sell a community-based product, um, but you can check out my website just if you're curious to see how I've laid it all out there on my kind of internet storefront. Um, and that's scholarshape.com. Awesome. And oh, I'm, I guess I'm also on Instagram, although I don't, <laughs> and Twitter, actually, I do have these social media accounts. I'm, I'm hoping to become more active on them at some point in the near future. You're welcome to connect me with me there if you'd like to. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. I think this was a really uh, wonderful discussion. And I appreciate you sharing all of your experience and evolution here with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For Margie, evolving her work into a membership model was natural. It was something that allowed her to lean into her creativity and curiosity and to be in direct contact with her customers as she continues to evolve her work. The shift allowed her to create more weightlessness and freedom in her business and to continue to operate her business as a company of one. Margie made conscious choices about the best way she could serve her customers, and that turned out to be a community. Next week, I'm talking to Katie Hunt of Proof to Product. She also shifted her services to a community, but it's very different than Margie's. We'll look at how this idea evolved in her business, how her community fits in with the rest of her services, and what her business looks like after she shifted. So make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rundvik.